I'm a big fan of credit. Credit is one of the greatest inventions of all time, right? It was essentially the foundation of the industrial revolution, right? The ability to take in a lot of capital that you can't have your own on an interest rate and invest it. Um, and just like, you know, you and I, you know, and others being able to buy a home with a 30-year loan at a fixed rate, I mean, that's amazing, right? And so, but those products also haven't evolved much. And um, I think there's a lot of great innovation happening there right now. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And today I have the opportunity to have a really fun conversation with a, a fellow entrepreneur and operator in the, the mortgage ecosystem, Mr. John Passanen, the co-founder and CEO at Maxwell. John has built an incredible business over the last seven or eight years since the founding of the company in 2015. And in this episode, we talk about the evolution of the business the parts of the strategy that were roadmapped from the day one and the parts of the strategy where his clients and the business's clients helped pull the company forward in innovation. The last decade has brought a lot of change and opportunity to digital innovation in the housing industry. And John and his team at Maxwell have been at the forefront of a lot of that innovation and adoption. I hope you enjoyed this episode with John Passanen, co-founder and CEO at Maxwell. John, I swear I'm not just mining my Rolodex from my uh, my alma mater alumni list for for podcast guests, but I've, I've had a I've had a couple of Elon guests on in the past from my undergrad days, and now like, you're yeah. my first uh, my first MBA, my first nice Duke, awesome. uh fellow alumni. Great, um, and I, I hope the audience knows we're not we're, we're not like just mining alumni here. I'm interviewing across <laughs> the housing industry, but uh, happens to be a few folks who share my background. So, John, I'm sure you you went. To Duke for business school with the intention of starting a mortgage technology company, right? Absolutely. I mean, half my class was there to do that, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it was it was uh, you know Duke, Duke was a great experience, but spent two years there in their daytime program and and really was looking for a career change, right? I was moving kind of from the the uh, the investment banking world and wanted to get more into uh, into industry and ended up moving into American Express and. Spent about a decade between American Express and PayPal in, in the consumer credit world uh, before having a bad mortgage experience that landed me in this wonderful industry. So I know we talked about this before, but when you were at Amex, were, were you in New York or where were you based? I was in New York for a little bit and then spent most of my time in London. Uh, okay. And so I was in their international consumer group uh, doing everything from business development for a while, business operations, and then I led a $200 million revenue P&L for them um, out there. Huge. Well, you know, we we didn't know each other at the time, but we were probably like a couple floors away from each other in World Financial Center when I was at uh, when I was at RBC, and you were at Amex uh, in the same building. Yeah, nice part of New York. Um, fun, fun memories, New York City. Now we've moved on. You're in snowy Colorado, and I'm in uh, hot slash cold slash hot Texas, depending on the day. It moves back and forth. Yeah, S- something about New York that's not as conducive to to families and and uh, and strollers and all those things, right? <laughs> Not yeah. so much, but so, so John, let's jump into talking about your business that you were a co-founder and CEO of Maxwell and Maxwell, I, I think started kind of popping up on the the housing wire radar in, in 2017 and uh, a, a year that housing or that Maxwell was initially recognized as a uh, tech 100 winner. And I went back and grabbed the profile from 2017 and um, I think you've changed a little bit. So like the initial business was proposed as 
Maxwell is a Silicon Valley-based point-of-sale and workflow automation tool built for loan officers and borrowers. And if I understand correctly, Maxwell point-of-sale is still alive and well, but you've also expanded into a lot of other areas. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we've gone from from just being a point of sale to really thinking about the entire origination value chain and how do we use technology and capabilities to serve local lenders uh, to enable their business with better better software, better efficiency, uh, and better pricing across the entire stack. I think we realized as we started to serve, you know, really the you know what I would qualify as the longer tail of the market. You know, those doing kind of less than five billion a year in originations. You know, they didn't have the capabilities to really, uh, you know, create the kind of efficiencies on their own. Um, and so our ability to do that at scale by combining them together, pulling them together was was pretty, pretty incredible. You know, it's a lot of like what we did at, at PayPal and places like like Square, right? You use your larger platform to bring benefits for, you know, the smaller players that are part of it. I think across fintech, there's always a lot of conversations about being end to end versus being like, niche best of breed and focus. And I think you're bringing up an interesting decision point on like servicing and serving the long tail of, of the housing market. And we know that mortgage has an especially long tail, but I think the the tail for real estate agents and brokers might even be, even be longer. So that's an interesting like industry dynamic, which influences like the players that might choose to, you know, go incredibly narrow versus a, attempt at more of a, an end-to-end strategy. Yeah, and I, and I I disagree with the premise that that you know doing more things means you're not best in class, and so I think it actually helps us be better in class, right? So, for example, our point of sale is better because we also do fulfillment, right? We know what happens to the loan when it hits processing. We know what happens to the loan when it hits when it hits underwriting. We do diligence and QC. We know what happens when it hits the secondary market. We trade it. We know what those steps and post-closing looks like, right? And so a lot of those problems are created by the borrower at the point of sale and we can help solve them early so they don't happen down, down in the chain. So I actually think we have a better solution as a result of doing all those things. Interesting. So let's go back to the early the early days in 2017, yeah. 2015 when you're founded, 2017 when um, from the the timeline when I just read this uh, description of the business was the was the vision of being multi product or multi service like part of the roadmap from early days or was there like an evolutionary point where you you and your co founders had the view that um, there's a bigger play here? Yeah. So if you go back way back in the Wayback Machine, you look at my angel pitch deck. Uh, it was in there, right? The idea, the original idea was there. I had no idea what I was talking about back then, <laughs> but, but it was in there. Right. And so, um, you know, we've, I've certainly evolved in the how, but, but the, what was there. Right. And, um, you know, coming out of a, a business like PayPal, where you have payment networks that are in the transaction with their clients, right. They're creating value. They're not selling software to their clients. They're in the, in the trenches with them delivering the product, um, that's that's what we wanted to create at the end of the day, right? And, and leverage the scale of the network to bring cost benefits, efficiencies, margin back to our clients. And so, um, you know, it's a it's a multi phase vision, and we needed to get scale first, and then start adding capabilities. And, and now we're in kind of the next the next inning, uh, which is starting to really standardize how that mortgage is originated and the quality that kind of comes through our, our funnel. I um I think one of the more like interesting launches that we've seen from you in the last few years is is Maxwell Capital. Give us a glimpse into what Maxwell Capital does. 
Yeah. So Maxwell Capital, you know, we have this year we'll have about, you know, call it $75 billion or so volume flow through our platform. You know, so we're effectively, if you were to put us on a list of lenders, we'd be um, in the top 10, probably, if not in the top five uh, this year. And so, you know, we have all the data on all those loans. Um, in, in many cases, we're directly affecting the quality of those products through our fulfillment and, and QC. And so why shouldn't we be the ones to purchase them um, and help trade them in the secondary market? And so being able to do that at scale and deliver better pricing to, you know, a community bank or an IMB that's doing 150 million, 200 million a year, they can't get access to those kind of investors on their own is, is incredibly valuable for them. And I think the theory over time is because we know the quality of the product that we're, that we're, we're trading uh, eventually, you know, the pools that we're creating will be more valuable um, because there'll be more transparency and integrity and quality in those, in those loans. I know the roadmap from the beginning was multi-product and multi-service, but have there been specific clients that have helped pull you forward into these areas or, or long tail, long tail client segments that said like, Hey, John, Hey, Hey, Maxwell team, like we need support on the secondary market. Is this an area you can play? Yeah. I mean, if you look at all of our products, um, you know, it's all customer driven. You know, I, I always think the best, the best, businesses are built when your, your customer is kind of pulling your roadmap out of you. Um, I mean, that goes all the way back to our early days. We spent really the first year before we launched anything with over a thousand mortgage professionals, just interviewing them. My One of my co-founders came out of the Stanford D school. And so had a, had a very big bent on empathy and really understanding user problems. Um, you know, walking into a mortgage broker's office in Birmingham with a case of Red Bull and saying, Hey, can we just feed you Red Bull and, and staple papers for you and watch you work for a week? And, um, yeah, I think he's still a client pays us like 10 bucks a month or something. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Hey, that's great. Right. I mean, and, and he helped us effectively, you know, drive our roadmap forward and, and understand the problem. So every, every phase of the business has been, uh, you know, certainly driven by clients. And now that we're doing it ourselves, you know, we ha- basically have internal clients, right? We have our own processors, we have our own underwriters, we have our own QC analysts, right? We have our own traders. And so, um, you know, we, we call that dog fooding, right? We eat, we eat our own dog food. And so when we build software like Processor Edge that we just launched this year, we've been using that tool internally already for a year before we launched it. Um, and so uh, we're just able to get to market a lot faster and a lot sharper. What had to change in terms of the the team and strategy to be prepared to be this kind of multi-business unit um, operation that you're running today? Yeah, I think a lot of it had had to do, particularly over the last call it three years as we evolved from just pure software into actually doing a lot of this work is, is bringing in people that deeply understand the mortgage industry. And so if you look at our management team today, you know, there's certainly folks like me and my CTO that, that come out of Silicon Valley and come out of tech, but it's supplemented by folks like Bob, our, our CFO, right. Who was CEO and CFO at PHH for many years, you know, led all of the operations at JP Morgan Chase on the mortgage side. Um, folks like, our, our general counsel, Sonny, who spent a decade at Fannie Mae, um, right? So we have we have that expertise, uh, you know, in our management team that balances out the those of us that are a little more techie, um, and um, you know, m- maybe didn't know how to split a mortgage uh, uh, ten years ago. Putting yourself in that category, right? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I was fascinated by this industry. It was a multi-trillion dollar industry that was still being run on on Excel, and so I think there was. Um, you know, huge opportunity um, that, that attracted me to it and to, to be kind of a learner and ask a lot of good questions. 
It's interesting the business was founded in 2015 because I'm talking to a lot of folks across the fintech and um, mortgage and housing tech ecosystem. 2015 was a kind of a pivotal year for and a turning point for technology adoption and the beginning of this current innovation wave in, in the housing ecosystem. Did you face any headwinds out the gate on getting early adoption on, on point of sale or other products? And how, how has that changed kind of as the industry has evolved? You know what I'm most grateful for is uh, Super Bowl January 2016. There was <laughs> a company. Button. There was a company called Quicken that uh, had an ad that said "Push button get mortgage," and all of a sudden, everybody said, "I can't do that. Can you help me?" And so um, that was a huge win in our sales. I remember back in the day when I was still making sales calls. Right, we we call up a lender, and that was the way we explained it. You know, just like push button get mortgage, but for you. And, um, and so, uh, you know, grateful to our friends at, at, at Quicken and at Rocket for, for really, you know, setting the stage for the industry and setting a pace of saying, Hey, technology needs to be part of the way we do business in this industry. And, um, you know, I think you need pace setters like that, that, that are, that are pushing us, pushing the industry to evolve. So, um, that's been really helpful. And of course we have great partners at, at Meridian Link and ICE now, uh, formerly Ellie May, uh, and others that have been great partners in moving that technology forward and creating open APIs so we can start to integrate and share data and work together. I think that's just been a revolutionary change really over the last few years um, as people are more open to collaborating and sharing and integrating. It's, it's, it's really accelerating adoption and change, which is fantastic. You bring up an interesting point about how competitors or, or folks in the ecosystem, it might not be clients, but still like play in the ecosystem can be partners in market development and how having multiple players um, in a market can pave the way toward adoption for everybody and, and ultimately grow the pie. Absolutely. And and I think any anytime where there's a new industry and a new product, like point of sale back in 2015 was relatively new and you know, Roostify and the Rajesh and the team there did did a lot of that early work of sort of the missionary selling, right? They were one of the first brands out there that was talking about improving the borrower experience, right? Blend was still, I think, in stealth through 16, 17 or so, right? And before they started to come out and and some of those early folks did a lot of the the groundwork that, that um, and, you know, Simple Nexus obviously had been around for a while, but they were, they were very sort of niche mobile app focused at the time. And and, um, you know, a ton of respect for all the competitors and all of us are focused on a very similar goal, which is helping the industry evolve technologically to where it needs to be. If you think of 2015 through 2017 as kind of the, the early part of the, the point of sale wave and the early part of point of sale innovation and adoption, can you draw any uh, parallels to waves that, that might be starting now? Like what technologies do you see in 2021 and 2022 that are maybe just starting in their, their impact on the industry or might still be um, kind of behind the curtain? Yeah. So I would say two areas. One is, you know, back office, a uh, lot more focus, um, you know, with, from our friends at Candor, for example, on underwriting from, from us on processing um, and, and beginning to think about where all this manual labor is happening, a lot of administrative work. Um, you know, I think it's Garth that, that always says the greatest innovation in mortgage was the two screens, right? Um, reading, reading one data piece on one screen and transcribing it on the other. And so, you know, how do we move the humans from 
from being, uh, um, uh, you know, effectively data entry to actually doing things humans should do, which is making judgments, right. And, and making decisions and, 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 and tying logic together in a way that a computer might not be able to. So I think we're, we're in the early stages of that being really impactful in, in, in the mortgage origination process. I think the second area, there's some, a lot of very early interesting stuff going on is in the secondary market. Um, because everything we do in this industry in origination ends up in the secondary market, right? And now you have this huge industry of uh, investment banks that are trading pools and securitizing uh, these pools. And there's, there's a lot of demand for accurate, reliable data. And um, I, think, I think that's a really interesting space um, to recognize where all of our loans and our data end up. And, and how do we support that end of the market, ultimately the buyers um, in, in, in being successful? So I think there's a lot of interesting companies doing things in that space too. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, it seems like innovation had to start at the at the front end and, and at point of sale. And now for better or for worse with cost and focus, the the operations and and closing and and checkers checking checkers side has to be has to be front and center to to build a a more efficient mortgage ecosystem. Um it's uh it's tough to watch the MBA IMB costs of origination uh study and kind of see the cost to originate keep shooting up. I think the most recent report was over eleven thousand dollars for loan. I mean my favorite my favorite joke is it costs more to originate a loan than it does to build a Toyota. And so Which is insane. Uh, there's, some, like, I mean, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's gotta it's gotta evolve and get better. I mean, where, from where you sit, what are what are some areas that that you hear people being excited about? Well, I mean, before we move on from the topic of like cost origination, I, I think it's like you know worth like putting regulation in the spotlight and like knowing how important regulation is, but the direct correlation between cost to originate and timelines of of Dodd Frank and figuring out a level of regulation that works for the industry and does not end up costing homeowners uh, a, a lot of money. Ultimately, these costs do get passed through. Um, I'd say it's a, a front and center uh, focus what, that I think needs to get as much attention as possible across the housing ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, Dodd-Frank was what, 2010, CFPB was created in 2011. Um, and from that came things that needed to happen, right? But But they were layered on top of an industry that, um, you know, that, that was filling the holes with human spackle and, and um, needed to figure out other ways to resolve those problems beyond, beyond just, uh, just fingers and, and bodies. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question on what I'm seeing, so I, I think you're, you're spot on, on the, on the focus on, on operations like that, like there's a lot of room for innovation there and that's an area that's going to get front and center focus until lenders find profitability. So uh, re- really important area. The other important area that I think is in response to an issue in the market is the issue being uh, affordability and the innovation being product innovation. And yes. one of the things we've seen over I mean, it's a whole thesis behind housing wire, right? Of covering the whole housing industry is that um, real estate and mortgage keep getting closer together and uh, real estate brokerages, loan origination, loan servicing, and capital markets need to communicate and digest the same information and move in unison to build a a more sustainable and efficient housing, efficient housing economy. Like that's, that's our thesis. And like, where we see that playing out right now is innovation on like the the home purchase and, and finance process. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with um with power buyers and like cash buyer uh kind of alternatives. 
And um, I'm also really interested in what's happening in the uh, the shared equity space. And like, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be a great thing for consumers or, or for the housing market. But in the moment we are in right now, it is a it's an interesting place to watch as they attempt to ad- address challenges with affordability. And uh, you know, I think everyone's got a different view on on the housing economy and, you know, how much pain the fed is, is willing to inflict and how it will impact home prices. But, uh, if you subscribe to, um, the gospel, according to Logan Motoshami, uh, I don't, I don't think we're going to see our affordability challenges solved by home prices coming down anytime soon. Yeah. Conforming limits are, uh, are up above a million, right? So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think you're totally right. You know, that I'm a big fan of credit, Credit is one of the greatest inventions of all time, right? It was, it, it was essentially the foundation of the industrial revolution, right? The ability to, to, to take in a lot of capital that you can't have your own on an interest rate and, and, and invest it. Um, and just like, you know, you and I, you know, and others being able to buy a home with a 30 year loan at a fixed rate. I mean, that's amazing. Right. And so, um, but those products also haven't evolved much. And um, I think there's a lot of great innovation happening there right now. Um, and, and part of the thesis behind our business is, you know, with the scale of distribution we have now across these hundreds and hundreds of, of banks and institutions that originate loans, we can distribute those products, right? And we can make those available to more homeowners. We, we're lowering the cost, we're increasing margin, but more importantly, can we create products through Maxwell Capital that give people access to data? W- one example for you, um, we looked at over the last six months, 50,000 uh, loan declines. And we said, let's take a look at that data set of 50,000 loan declines and could we create a product and can we find segments of this 50,000 population that are actually great credit risks, right? Like we would totally give them a loan. And um, we found about 15% of that base is sort of a no-brainer. Like we could, we could go to partners on Wall Street and create a product that would be fantastic to give access We're going to take a quick break from this episode of Housing News to bring some attention to a recent webinar hosted by the CMBA and focused on recent Fannie Mae calibrations and trends. Featuring Kristen Broadley, QC Allies Chief Innovation Officer, and Bill Cleary, Vice President at Fannie Mae. The big takeaways from this conversation included that Fannie Mae is reporting that multiple COVID-related policy changes, coupled with record high origination volumes last year, led to an uptick in the defect rate for the 2021 vintage. Top defects in the first half of 2022 included rental income, base income, and liability calculation errors. Looking forward, Fannie Mae is focused on the power of pre-funding QC to manage risk. Both panelists talked about maximizing market opportunities through the power of pre-funding QC. If you missed this webinar and want to check it out, the CMBA has posted it to their website and we'll drop a link in the show notes.
like if they had walked into like an old school community bank, they would have gotten a, like one of those like um, like portfolio loans that like a no brainer exactly, kind of underwriting. Exactly. They just didn't fit the the Fannie Freddie box or or whatever it was that particular lender was trying to fit them into, and there wasn't a bunch of creativity to figure out other other places we can put them. So th- the great news is I think a lot of those products are out there. They're just not finding their ways to the consumer, and and we want to help solve that problem through through these institutions. To your point that know their borrowers. Um, I was talking to a customer, a uh, community bank. They probably have about eight branches. And and um, I was talking to the president and he said, you know, we don't even have underwriters. I said, you don't have underwriters? He's like, no, the loan officers do the underwriting. <laughs> the loan officers do the underwriting. I said, your loan officers do the underwriting? He's like, sure. They, they, they've been, you know, employees of the bank for 20, 30 years. They know the family. They know their father. They know their grandparents. They coach their soccer teams. They go to church with them. They just know them so well. Who else would I want doing the underwriting? Um, and so, you know, is there a way to sort of imitate that with data at scale where you can get to know the, the credit risk much more intimately than, than a three digit number, uh, to make a, to make a decision. All right. So this is like 50,000 like loan evaluation. Was this done under the Maxwell private label origination business line? So this was done across all, all of our products. So we looked, we looked okay. at, we looked at loans across all of the, all of the products where we get to touch that data. Um, uh, and really to ask the question, is there a space in here for us to work with our partners to create products that, that, that broaden that, that pathway to homeownership for more people? Yeah. So um, we're also seeing a lot of interest in not just product innovation on like shared equity or power buyers, but product innovation inside of like, you know, relatively traditional mortgage products, just not conforming. So like the non-QM product set, um, a ton of interest in the uh, in, in reverse mortgages that we're not seeing that in the data yet of uh, reverse volume picking up. I mean, we've made our bets there and acquired a couple small reverse mortgage publications and been a lot of effort into bolstering our non-QM uh, audience from a origination perspective. Um, how do you see kind of lender interest from like the folks that you have strong like point of sale or fulfillment or diligence relationships with and their interest in um, in private label, non-QM, reverse, kind of the, the non-conforming set? Yeah. I mean, I think obviously today there's a lot of hunger for it, right? Because you want to be able to say yes to as many people that walk in your door as possible. You know, the traditional lender has the challenge of education. You know, how do I educate my sales force so that they're able to, to, to converse and sell and talk about these products to their customers and the breadth of products that we could offer as a lender. I think to some extent, again, us as a point of sale and also a correspondent is that, you know, we, we get to also have the eyeballs of the loan officer and the consumer um, through that conversation. And so, um, you know, eventually our ability to put the right products in front of the right people. And we still believe very much in the loan officer and the role that they play. Um, but, but that in the moment education, if you will, um, that, that hyper, hyper relevant products when Clayton and his family walk in the door for a loan is, is, is incredibly important. So I think that's where we want to, we want to evolve to is, is again, we have this huge distribution network of, of partners of, you know, thousands of loan officers on our platform, allowing them to offer those products to their clients um, in the moment that are hyper relevant and give them access is, is, is incredibly valuable. So John, as we look back over like the last seven years or so, like 
you've navigated and operated through a few very distinct environments in the mortgage industry. And we saw the big margin compression year in 2019 that that had the industry pretty fearful. We went straight into 2020 with, with COVID and another wave of fear and then interest rates coming down and then bandwidth issues and like just the, the craziness that we've had over the last four years, like the ups and downs. How have industry market cycles influenced your conviction in the business or willingness to launch new business lines or timing of roadmap? Like how, how have these cycles influenced like when you're ready to press the gas or when you need to operate with more caution? Yeah, I, I've, I've, um, I've come to love it uh, because I think the, the cycles create opportunity with, you know, I'm going to massacre a quote from, from uh, our friend Warren Buffett here, but it, it, something, something to the effect of, you know, wealth, wealth is created in the downturns and collected in the upturns. Right. And so because you have this industry that's naturally, naturally cyclical and naturally seasonal, right. There's always going to be these waves of opportunities that come along. And I think we're in one now candidly um, uh, in that respect. And the, the other benefit of these waves is it drives transformation. Right. And so you, you, you saw, you, you see at these different stages, this, this shift in demand driven by the need that that cycle brings. Um, and I still remember the, the April board meeting in, uh, 2020, we presented a plan where like 50% of our customers are going to go out of business, right? <laughs> if you remember the liquidity crisis, it was sort of in full heat at that point. Um, that was a scary moment for the industry. And, um, and, and of course we all know how that turned out, uh, as, as 2020 rolled along for, 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 for uh, for, for the, for the lenders. So, um, yeah, I, I've come to really appreciate it and, and uh, you know what I what I tell every investor in our first couple conversations as I'm as as we're talking about investing in Maxwell is is hey this is cyclical and you have to be comfortable with that and let me show you how that affects our numbers and and um, I I love it personally and here's why and and it's not for everybody right um, but uh, I think the, the the folks that understand that and, and lean into it um, you know I think they they ultimately win over time. Man, I wish you and I had talked about that like cyclicality and like investor conversation like years ago because I think it, that's something that took me a little longer to learn and uh, and like not hiding from the fact that the housing market and the real estate industry like does move in cycles and like the most effective investors and operators will be aligned in the vision that like these businesses will move in cycles. And I think your Buffett quote is, is beautiful. That's actually one I didn't, did, I didn't know that quote. That's a good yeah. one. It might be a Munger quote. I maybe, maybe yeah. one of the two, but, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good one to remember. And I think it, it, it and again, I, I learned that from our customers, right? You look at the battle hardened CEOs of these companies that have, that have been through these ups and downs. They, they know it, they expect it, they know how to manage through it. And um, they know there's, there's thin days and fat days and you, you plan accordingly. Yeah, so um, I you know talked to our, our our mutual friend and industry expert Nima Wedlake a few episodes ago, and um, we talked about the the topic and in investing in these like uh, prop tech and fintech related businesses where the models moving away from being pure software, which I think Maxwell fits into this category of having raising operating capital for the business, but then also having like balance sheet capital, um, whether you're, you're lending or operating a secondary markets desk or a private label origination business. How, how did you like come to tackle like that decision of like 
building a balance sheet that you can run this like diversified business model off of in terms of, of raising capital. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think our intent is ever to have a, a, a balance sheet business where we're, you know, servicing a book or doing anything like that. So, you know, we, we, we are involved in the trading of the business, but we don't hold loans for long periods of time. Um, you know, typically when we're, we're buying, we've already sold, um, you know, eventually we may start pooling, but that'll be again, hopefully on a, on a short-term, short-term basis. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we, we may also evolve to other models where we have partners that are interested in being more of the balance sheet. And, and again, we're, we're providing the flow and the service. So, um, I think that'll, that'll evolve. I, I, I um, I don't know my, my view still out on that, whether that's something that we want to do longer term or not. Um, because to your point, it's a, it's a different business and a different level of risk and, um, different people have different appetites for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And I, I guess I understood you weren't building a balance sheet business, but there's still some like a little different capital structure that's needed to even like hold loans for a very short amount of time. Right. Versus like the software model. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we certainly do have a balance sheet that we, that we maintain and, and manage, and that's a different kind of capital than, than we, than, than the growth capital that we traditionally raise. That's right. Yeah. So coming back to the the topic of cycles, I mean, you, you mentioned that like you believe we might you know, be at one of the points right now where there's there's opportunity. Um, how do you think about that opportunity for for your business? Are you you know is this product expansion time or new logo time? Like how, how do you like where do you um, focus your efforts on you know being a, a grower through a cycle? Yeah, I mean, part of that I'll have to say I'll have to say you'll see. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, yeah, and, and what I'll say is the, the product mix has shifted and then maybe that's the captain of the obvious statement, right? Whereas in, in 2020 and 2022, people just needed help. They needed, they needed capacity, right? And so, you know, we were there to help provide capacity. Now the challenge is not capacity. It's, we need efficiency and margin, right? And so, you know, we've seen a product shift mix towards more of the pr- our products that lean into this product uh, productivity efficiency area, um, and so I think that's where you're going to continue to see us invest. I think the other big problem that customers have is is uh, you know how do I get more potential buyer b- b- borrowers and how do I help them convert? And um, that's again something that we can we can help with um, at scale. So. Um, I can't say much about what's coming, but, uh, but well, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> okay. Nice. I mean, like, yeah, that the topic of finding more business is, is front and center right now. And like, I think we've, you know, talked to players on this podcast about, um, leveraging servicing portfolios and different partnerships to, un- to uncover opportunities. So that's definitely seems to be a front and center focus out there. Yeah. Partnerships are huge. And again, I think in a time where, the industry is going through the cycle. We're seeing a lot more people sort of turn to each other and say, how can we help one another? Yep. And I think that's great. That's what this industry needs. We're not, um, e- even if we might be competitors on the surface, we're all, we all want the same thing at an industry level. Let's, let's help each other get there. So um, a lot of partnership stuff in the works um, for us and I'm sure many others. So if you're talking to like peer fintech or peer uh, mortgage technology operators, like what, what do you think are like some of the, um, you know, the shared secrets on being a winner through a cycle versus like being someone who um, gets chewed up as 
clients look for cost reductions or whatever reasons are that someone loses market share in this cycle. Where do you put your focus to ensure that you're a winner as we navigate? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, uh, you know, for us, it's very much betting on the winners, right? Whether that's betting on the right salespeople that are going to close the deals, whether that's betting on your products that you know will close and shifting a lot of focus to that. I think there's a lot of cost discipline necessity, right? And in, in, in managing your costs and being very careful with with cash as you manage through the cycle, not being afraid to invest, but you know, you're probably not going to be doing 15 moonshot things, right? In the next in the next 12 months as you move through this cycle. So being very cautious about where you're betting um, and, and where you're seeing those returns. Um, I think partnering is is important as we talked about uh, to see to see that upside there. And so those are some of the areas that that um, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about uh, in the market. What are what are some of the ones you're you're seeing, Clayton? You know that the point of not as many moonshots um, resonates. One one of my investors just hosted a a webinar this afternoon with um with Mitch Rails, who's the co-founder and CEO of Danaher. And Danaher has been just a, a massive success story of of wealth creation over over several decades. And you know, they've proven to be like one of the best like capital allocators out there. And um in terms of knowing when to deploy capital into acquisitions and knowing when to deploy into innovation and knowing when to leverage debt and when to issue equity and when to buy back shares and, and like the you know the capital allocation cycle has flowed with with Danaher. But the big like one of the big points that Mitch was making to the the operators and entrepreneurs on this um, small call was that like your your little te- your test projects your like your moonshots that are like kind of sucking cash flow like those those might go to like the wayside right now and like more capital might flow closer to revenue. So like if it's, uh, if you're having success in a product, uh, maybe move a little bit of budget away from the moonshot and push that into um, either incentivizing account executives or hiring more salespeople or make going a little bit harder on the, the, um, the marketing lever. So he, he, he brought up that's kind of similar point that like, this might not be the, the market to, um, to test organic moonshots, but um, reserving cash to invest in things that are already driving growth and being successful or reserving cash and balance sheet capacity for, for M and a is another area he focused a lot on. Yeah. And our our product team is focused a lot into that point on, on doing things scrap in scrappy ways, right? Because, you know, we're not going to deploy three product managers and two engineering pods to some, some moonshot, but if a product manager wants to spend 15% of the time trying something out that could turn into something bigger, we're all for it, right? Go, go, go for it. And so, um, uh, that's, that's, you don't want to lose innovation in the midst of, of sort of constraint. I, I think these cycles can also be career defining, not, not just for executives, but also for like the product manager that you just mentioned, that's going to spend 15% of her time, um, on a separate product that on the other side of a cycle might be a whole business line, which we're confident she'd be running. And, uh, that is a, um, you know, that, that's something that I, you know, watch for closely as we navigate cycles or like who are like the team members and partners that can, you know, you know, put on the battle gear, navigate a tough environment and, and innovate and grow through it. And, um, so I think it's a, you know, it can be pretty defining professionally for the people who know how to, to play in this type of environment. Yeah. That's a great point, Clayton. And one of the things I've tried to do as a CEO is, um, you know, take a look at the folks on your team that, you know, can drive, results and they've maybe been driving results in a particular function for a while 
and say, hey, tap you on the shoulder. I want you over here now, right? And this yep. is something new and exciting. And I trust you and your ability to execute. And it's a great career development area for them. And again, you're betting on folks that you know are going to do something well. Maybe they've got the machine operating already over here and you don't need them them, you know, on the on the on the steering wheel over there anymore, right? But they'll have 10x the results somewhere else. And so I think as leaders, it's also an opportunity to you know, if you're closer to the floor, you're, you know, your, your, your failure is not going to hurt so much, <laughs> um, through a down cycle. Right. And so let's, let's experiment with talent too. Uh, it's a great time to do that. And it's the time, like people learn a lot about themselves and in, in cycles. And I, you know, apply this to the lenders that, you know, listen and read housing wire that like, you're seeing the, the, the guys who said, Hey, I'm a refi guy. I don't know how to operate a purchase market. Um, you know, that kind of self-definition is, is detrimental. And like, I think, I don't think you really, you start to see how dynamic somebody is until a market shifts. And like, you know, it's, it's, we'll bring in another Warren Buffett quote is you, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Yeah. And like, this, this is yeah. one of those markets right. you get to see like, yeah. who's, um, <laughs> who's got what they say they do. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it, 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 it should breed innovation from the best yep. people um, to figure out like genuinely hard problems now. Right. So John, as we look forward to 2023, um, we're, I think a lot of the, the industry forecasts are, you know, still looking at a pretty tough rate environment and pretty tough margin and or, uh, volume environment in the, in the first half of the year. How do you kind of prepare your organization and team, um, four different market environments like the like are you talking to your team about like forecast you're reading from from Fannie and Freddie and the NBA like how do you get them comfortable with like hey this is the environment we're marching into yeah probably like a lot of others we we benchmark our our forecasts to um our, our own business forecasts to market uh market volumes and yep. so we can have sensitivities to say if this if next year is going to be a 1.5 trillion dollar market what does that do to our operating results. If it's going to be a $2.2 trillion market, what does that do to our operating results? And so that's an important place to start and just understand how, how that market volume affects your customers and ultimately affects you um, and your different businesses. Um, but we spend a lot of time uh, preparing, I think, in this environment for the downside. Um, you know, what I told our board at our last board meeting is the plan we're putting forward is the downside plan, right? We know, we know that Right. We, well, I don't say we know it, but we, we have more confidence that, um, you know, that there's a, there's a floor. Um, we know there's going to be upside, but I'm not, I don't know if it's going to be in February. I don't know if it's going to be in July. I don't know if it's going to be in October. And I don't want to be caught with the tide out with no clothes on if, if it ends up not being in the month that we predict it. And so you also don't want to be caught in a scenario where you're not prepared to grow when the market presents itself. That's right. That's right. And if you look at, you know, one of my favorite graphs is, um, existing home sales since the 1960s overlaid with recessions. And what you see is um, two quarters before recession starts, existing homes still start to decline. So typically housing leads into a recession. And then two quarters before the recession ends, you typically start to see home sales coming out of the recession. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, we lead in we're, in, we're in one now. Many people say housing recession, hopefully we lead out, right? And so yep. if there is an actual economic recession next year, housing will be one of the first to emerge. And, and to your point, we want to build our fleet and get ready for that, for that moment. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, like we're sharing like pretty similar thought patterns on how we work with our, our finance teams and, you know, think about uh, industry trends. I mean, we're, we're doing the same thing, like building for building for the downside case and knowing where the floor is. Um, 
but also planning to exit any type of re- recession two quarters before the broader economy. Yeah. And, you must have uh, gone to you must have gone to good business school, Clayton. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so, all right, John. So you talk about business planning from the uh, from the perspective of like your business performance rides origination volume, but like I, I went back and looked at your 2021 tech. Um, 100 nomination, and I, and, you know, this is probably a rough number, but like last year, you did approximately 70 billion in mortgage origination volume, or facilitated 70 billion in origination volume. You said this year you'll do 75, so like you're out, you're beating the market. Like, like the market had a down year, and you still found, um, you still found growth. Yeah. So the the theme that we have in in the business right now is is durable growth. Um, is 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 the word, buzzword we're using, and and um, you know my mantra with the team very much is is finding the fast moving water, right? So if you can imagine the you're you're in a kayak and you're headed down the river, the rapids have been moving fast for the last couple of years, but now you're in that lull where the water kind of gently goes around the bend and things have slowed down a little bit, but there's still going to be fast moving water, right? And so our, our our goal and our role right now as a as a leadership team and as as employees at our at our company. Where's the fast moving water right now in the in the business? And let's let's find that fast moving water this year. And I think we've been successful at that. And so, you know, um, you know, our our our, our volumes are up uh, probably about twenty percent year over year in the last quarter, um, where many others are reporting 50, 60, 90 percent declines. And so, yeah, just just grateful that we're able to to help our customers win, and and more customers are seeing the value of what we're building that they can they can come join what we're doing. Well, John, it's been pretty fun to learn more about the evolution of of your business since founding in 2015 and the uh, first Tech 100 Award in 2017 and how the business has just grown and evolved and stayed true to that mission of of serving clients and helping them win. Thank you so much for for sharing a kind of a look behind the, the curtain at the, you know, the, the challenges and the opportunities you face as an operator in the mortgage tech world. Yeah. Thank you, Clayton. Great to hang out. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the housing news podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.